No, Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to Superman. And now here's your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Superman Forever Radio. Man, it's good to be back after skipping a week. And I do have a more graceful option for those skip weeks in the future, but uh, we'll wait for that. I'll talk a little bit more that, about that down the line in another episode. And I really hope every, you know the New Year is treating everybody great. Uh, so far, so good on my end. Uh, and you know, This week, I want to start a series of episodes on Superman and animation, beginning with the Fleischer Studios Superman cartoons of the 1940s. To be accurate, the only true Fleischer Superman installments in the series were the first eight of the 17 shorts, while the final nine were actually done by Famous Studios. Now, Fleischer Studios was owned by brothers Max and Dave Fleischer. Max had been an illustrator for catalog companies, having received a degree in commercial art from the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art. And Dave Fleischer was a film cutter for a French film production and distribution company. In 1914, the brothers invented an animation technique called rotoscoping, in which the animator would trace frames of live-action footage to achieve a more realistic animated style. The technique would be used in the Fleischer Brothers animated shorts Out of the Inkwell, which had uh, Dave Fleischer dressed as a character named Coco the Clown. The studio would produce many animated shorts, including early forays into color and sound animation, and of course they were responsible for Betty Boop, and the early Popeye the Sailor cartoons. Now, following Disney's success of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, uh, Max Fleischer decided to make, uh, the Fleischers together decided to make their own animated feature, Gulliver's Gulliver's Travels, which saw release in 1939. And while working on their second feature, Paramount Pictures, who had been their distributor, pitched the Fleischers on doing cartoon shorts based on the phenomenally popular Superman comics. At first, they kind of balked at the job and demanded $100,000 budgets for each short, but ironically, Paramount actually agreed to $50,000, and the price was just too too much to pass up. And Clayton Bud Collier was recruited from the Adventures of Superman radio show to voice the Man of Steel, and Joan Alexander reprised her radio role as Lois Lane as well. The first cartoon in the series, simply titled Superman, was released on September 26, 1941, the short, which would actually become known as a mad scientist, blew audiences away with its animation and edited science fiction field, just the, the great action that was packed into it. With the rotoscoping process, Superman actually moved like a live actor, and uh, there were tons of uh, feats of might. Now, Fleischer Studios would produce eight more through the rest of 1941 and 1942, and they would be The Mechanical Monsters, Billion Dollar Limited, The Arctic Giant, The Bulleteers, the Magnetic Telescope, Electric Earthquake, Volcano, and Terror on the Midway. On top of Superman's first appearance on the silver screen, and animation so ahead of its time the influence is still felt today, the series originated the classic opening line, Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound in its first seven episodes. Though it would be changed to Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to soar higher than any plane, when the cartoonists first introduced a flying Superman to the world. 
At this point in the comics, Superman was only leaping from place to place, which came off as really awkward in the animation, so the cartoonists actually asked permission to just let Superman fly. But even with this achievement, the Fleischer Studios, they were not making a profit, and the Fleischer Brothers themselves were not even on speaking terms. And the studio had borrowed large sums of money from Paramount Pictures, and Paramount eventually called in their debts, forcing Dave and Max out and forming uh, famous studios out of the remnants. With the Superman cartoons under new management, the high caliber of animation and the sleek look continued, but the science fiction themes were kind of dropped in favor of more World War II propaganda. And the final eight Superman shorts were Japateurs, Showdown, Eleventh Hour, Destruction Inc., The Mummy Strikes, Jungle Drums, The Underground World, and finally Secret Agent, which would be released on July 30th, 1943. And Paramount would discontinue the shorts citing the high budgets and just lowered interest in the series. And Famous would move on in, in comic strip form, or to adapt comic strip heroine Little Lulu. But this wasn't the end for these shorts by any means. They would inspire another generation of artists. Frank Miller cited the series as an inspiration for The Dark Knight Returns and features the altered Fleischer-style Superman emblem, which had a black background with a yellow border and a bold red S in the sequel, The Dark Knight Strikes Again. And Darwin Cook would use the same design in DC New Frontier. And the color palette and design would be adapted by Bruce Timm in Batman the Animated Series and furthermore in the 90s Superman the Animated Series. While at the same time the mechanical monster robot design has been used in everything from The Tick to Sky Captain the World of Tomorrow. Now after the dissolution of Fleischer Studios, Dave Fleischer became head of Columbia's Screen Gem Stute Cartoon Studio. Until he died, of, well, and then died of a stroke on June 25th, 1979. Max went on to become head of the animation division of the Jim Handy organization, and he died from heart failure on September 11th, 1972. The rift between the two brothers was never resolved, but their contribution to both animation and the world of Superman remains untarnished. Because watching these today doesn't lessen the impact, lessen the impact by any means. The cartoons are still sharp as can be. The animation is still um, even well above some of the uh, DC uh, Universe direct-to-DVD movies. And of course these uh, shorts are still easily available to you. The Internet Archive has every episode available for download and you can often find bootlegs because these are in the public domain. So it's been on DVD and VHS so many times over the years. And Warner Brothers actually officially released the shorts uh, with the first nine packaged in the Superman the Movie 4 disc special edition and the latter eight with the special edition of Superman 2 before finally releasing them as their own standalone feature with uh, Superman the Fleischer cartoons 1941 to 1943. Elsewhere in Superman's world, a recent teaser poster for the second half of Small Bill's final season features Tom Welling's Clark Kent standing on a mirrored Superman symbol with the famous red boots and blue tights in the reflection, with the tagline, Destiny is Now. This has fueled uh, more fire on the speculation around whether we will actually see Welling in the Superman costume or if the producers will balk. Uh, so far, there's been, there's been nothing confirmed or denied on the matter. 
And in the realm of Superman comics, Wednesday's Steel One-Shot kicked off the Doomsday Will Reign storyline with a major development for a longtime Superman character. And the storyline will continue with Outsiders number 37, Justice League of America number 55, Superman Batman Annual number 5, Superboy number 6, before coming to a close in, in an unannounced sixth chapter. And in movie news, the Superman reboot producer Charles Roven confirmed that the new Zack Snyder-directed movie and Christopher Nolan's Batman franchise will not share a universe. This means no Superman and Batman on-screen dukeroo for us. But All-Star Superman D uh, hits DVD shelves next month and already has one fan, Grant Morrison, who, has, who actually wrote the 12-issue miniseries the directed dvd animated feature is based on. And Morrison was quoted as saying, It only took a single viewing for All-Star Superman to become one of my all-time favorite superhero movies. Which uh, sounds like an approving endorsement to me, wouldn't it to you? And in video game news, DC Universe Online, the beta test ended this just in time for this upcoming Tuesday's release. And most players were uh, you know, summoned to a single location where developers arrived in the game as Superman, Batman, Lex Luthor, and the Joker and an all-out brawl occurred before the server was shut down. For the rest of us, we have our first screen grabs of the in-game version of Superman himself, and these are available online based on Jim Lee's designs. Superman is not a playable character in the game, but will make an appearance as you navigate the world of the DC Universe. And of course, uh, coming out on comic book shelves this week, um, January 12th, 2011, will be Superman number 707, Written by J. Michael Straczynski, with art by Alan Goldman, Eber Ferreira, and a cover, one cover by John Cassidy, with a 1 in 10 variant cover by Joe Chin. And as far as uh, trades go, Superman The Last Stand of New Krypton Volume 2 will be hitting. Written by James Robinson and Sterling Gates, with art by Bernard Chang, Jamal Igel, Pete Woods, Julian Lopez, and Travis Moore, with a cover by David Finch. And this collects Superman The Last Stand of, uh, Last Stand of New Krypton number 3, Adventure Comics number 10 through 11, Supergirl number 52, and Superman number 699, which would complete that storyline. It'll be 128 pages for $19.99. And this week's top five, straight from the copy room of the JLA satellite, is the top five methods for winking to the reader. For decades, the reader and Clark Kent shared a secret, uh, the secret of Superman's dual identity. To acknowledge that, Clark would cleverly wink to the reader every time somebody said something ironic about Superman's absence. Little did everybody know that Clark had perfected multiple techniques to vary up his winking styles. Today we look behind the horn-rimmed glasses to learn his top five methods, Beginning with number five, the half-moon posture. In this, Clark turns his upper torso to the left, while his lower body pivots to the right. The head is initially reared back before being knotted forward with perfect timing with the wink itself. A sly grin may be inserted as needed. Number four, the cobra. In this version, Clark naturally twists his body, while lifting his posture higher, creating the perfect smooth motion to lull the reader into a sense of trust. The eyelid is then clenched shut, thus giving the effect that perhaps the reader doesn't know all of Clark's secrets. Number three, the locust. This is similar to the half moon, but omits the turn on the lower portion of the body to put the reader into a position of equality. Ironically, the locust is the same method. 
Clark uses every day on the street to complete strangers, which may be the main reason Clark Kent has the same intriguing qualities found in such celebrities as Jack Nicholson and Ted Bundy. And number two, the bow posture. In this rendition, Clark Kent will reach out of the comic book, wrap his arm around the reader, and simply tell us, I will kill you eight ways from Sunday if you leak any of this, while juxtaposing his terror, uh, this terror with an affable wink. And the number one method Clark Kent uses to wink at the reader? Magnum. The same as above, but turning the opposite way, which achieves basically the exact same effect as parting your hair uh, to the opposite side of your head. And it's time for a new pair of contenders to step up for round one, week five of Metropolis Idol. After Adam Baldwin narrowly beat out Kyle MacLachlan by 57% last week, Adam now moves into position for his second round showdown with Tim Daly. And this week's contestants bring us to the Battle of the Superboys, as John Hames Newton, who played Superboy for one season on the syndicated TV show, goes toe-to-toe with his successor, successor Gerard Christopher, or should I say Spit Curl, Spit Curl. Uh, Gerard Christopher actually played the role uh, for the remaining three seasons and almost had the Superman role on Lois and Clark before they passed on him because he of his history with the character. And this brings us one step closer to round two and the face-offs that will let Superman Forever radio listeners choose the one true ultimate Superman. Votes are open till Friday night and the results will be announced on next week's show. Happy voting! And now we move forward with our issue-by-issue look back at the entire New Earth Era Superman comics. And our journey has taken us to the Superman comic books cover dated September 2006. This week we will kick it off with Action Comics number 841, which is Back in Action Part 1 of 3. And this issue is plotted by Kurt Busiek and Fabian Nicieza, with Busiek tackling scripting duties, Pete Woods doing pencils and inks, Brad Anderson is on colors, Lettering was done by Robert Rob Lay, and a cover uh, done by Dave Givens, colored by Moose Bowman. And the issue was edited by Matt Idelson with associate editor Nachi Castro. The issue opens on the deck of a spaceship where small robots appraise, ship, and accept bids. One of the robots seeks A-level approval to acquire a space-bound vehicle, and a shadow-covered figure grants approval to acquire the vehicle and follow the ship's destination. Back on Earth, Superman flies to the rescue as Carapax tries to steal circuits from Dayton Labs. Carapax is actually a villain that first appeared in the first issue of the Post-Crisis Blue Beetle series. His real name is Conrad Carapax, and he was an archaeologist and rival of the original Blue Beetle, Dan Garrett. Carapax found a robotic suit in the lab of Jarvis Cord, the uncle of Ted Cord, which was the second Blue Beetle and Carapax's mind was transferred into that indestructible robotic suit in the lab, which is what Superman is facing here. Now, Superman's internal monologue reveals that Carapax has basically been laying low, maintaining the suit, and just trying to find a way out of it. But at the moment, he's basically just causing havoc on the street, trying to get to those circuits as a small crowd of people attempt to flee from him. Superman slams into Carapax to get away, get him away from the church next door to the lab and protect the people inside the church. And Carapax tells Superman that, hey, I heard you were gone. Superman simply states, I returned. And the authorities surrounding the scene question whether this is the real Superman as they ready their Kaneda blasters. 
and Carapax has a slight upper hand on Superman when he when a blast hits the villain in the back, and Firestorm shows up, trying to transmute the armor into gas before Superman explains, no, 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 this isn't armor. There's not a humor in, human inside. He is the armor. You're killing him. So Firestorm renders him Carapax unconscious, and also asks if Superman is the real deal, as the police ironically accept Firestorm's help, but refuse Superman's. So Superman takes off, leaving Firestorm to talk about manners with his co-pilot, before he himself takes off as well. And one of the robots from the first page materializes on that street, stating that he has no trace of the ship, but has found other valuable items. On the ship, the commander tells them to halt the search for the ship, the fleeing ship, as multiple reports are coming in of structures ranging from the pyramids to the Golden Gate Bridge, and each of these could fetch a profit. At the church in Baltimore, another robot, much like the spider, or much like a spider, appears and rips the church out of the ground, Brainiac style, and beams it away. Firestorm happens to notice this and follows the data trail left by the robot. And back at the Daily Planet, Lois tells Clark Kent that Newstime has offered her a cover story, uh, trying to verify if Superman is indeed the real deal or a fake, which she's considering taking because, after all, it is a cover story. And suddenly, Jimmy runs into the break room, yelling about giant robots all over the world, which should be par for the course in the Daily Planet break room. Might be a little out of place in the real world, but this has got to happen pretty often to them. So Clark fakes taking the initiative to cover the New York angle of the story and heads out, but of course, we know what he's really doing. And in New York, the robots are capturing St. Patrick's Cathedral, where Nightwing decides to try to stop the data stream by polarizing a batarang. But before we see the results of Nightwing's maneuver, we are interrupted by a fold-out, inserted, comic-style ad for the Heroescape game, which could really throw somebody if they were reading haphazardly not realizing they've segued out of the book into the ad. And meanwhile, we return to the action, and we see Nightwing's attempt failed, and Superman shows up. Now, Nightwing knows right off that he's the real deal, since he's known the guy all the way back to his teen years. Now, Superman ponders touching the data stream, but Nightwing alerts him that the National Guard is getting pretty antsy and may attack soon, which could result in harm coming to the soldiers. But harm does come to the soldiers as the robot samples some of the National Guard's aggression, sending an electrical bolt through them. Superman shows up on the scene to do steady out the situation, but he's shunned by the commanding officer. And when he tries to pick up the phone to talk to the general on the other end of the, of the line, he is told that he does not have security clearance and is ordered to stand down. Meanwhile, the Teen Titans are kind of dealing with problems of their own a much larger version of these robots is attacking the San Francisco Bay. The lineup at this point consists of the Tim Drake Robin, Wonder Girl, Cyborg, Kid Devil, and Ravager. And Wonder Girl is taken out pretty quick, but saved by Robin from certain doom. Ravager, however, pulls some smooth moves on the robot, leaping into the air to deflect spheres that are shot from the robot's arms and managing to destroy it before Superman makes a last-minute save and drops her back off, but doesn't stick around to chat because now Alcatraz is being taken. And this robot that's taking Alcatraz, Superman pretty effortlessly takes out by slamming through it, which draws the attention of the ship's commander. Cyborg then informs everybody that the energy that the robot is releasing 
and stay with me on this, has negative tau leptons and anti-Higgs bosons. What that means in English to the rest of us is the energy could literally split the planet in half. So Superman flies the damaged robots into space where they explode harmlessly despite there being no oxygen in space to merit an explosion. And when Superman gets back on the planet, the ship's commander shows up and we meet the auctioneer, this giant yellow skin, green insect eyes, who uh, dwarfs the Golden Gate Bridge. And that is where the issue ends to be continued. So some notes on this particular issue. Page one, there's a good way to create mystery without being vague. They don't do that here. We actually just get an implication of the villain to come, but it's not anything that provokes interest, just more ho-hum. Now page two and three, the I Return line was obviously a reference to Superman Returns, which would be forthcoming shortly after this issue hit stands. And I'm not entirely clear on why Carapax was chosen. He's not even a Superman villain. Really, in terms of Blue Beetle, he's still a B-level villain for Blue Beetle. But uh, one of the good points is Pete Woods has a great handle on the crowd's facial expressions and the design, uh, as far as the background characters. Scooting ahead to page 6, Firestorm in this issue is Jason Rush, and his co-pilot at this time was Lorraine Riley, also known as Firehawk. Um, at this point, Professor Stein had been missing since one year later storyline began, so just a little note. Page 8, there is one note, uh, I just have to praise the consistency in Pete Wood's art. It's the fact that, you know, throughout these pages, the police officers that are basically background characters that are for, for better or worse, faceless characters, they're consistently shown in each of these scenes. So kudos to the consistency on that. And page 10, the auctioneer robots have a bit of a resemblance to Kellex here. And, other, well, basically any other Kryptonian robots as well from the post-crisis era. Now, as far as I know, this remains simply an art choice. But it would be cool if a writer picked that up later as a plot point. And page 12, the spider robot looks like one of the machines from the Matrix. I have to give uh, a little, you know, detract some points because the designs for the robots and, the, well, even the auctioneer himself, they're pretty uninspired in this issue. And moving to page 14, there are protesters outside the Daily Planet pleading to respect Superman's memory. This is probably the core problem I have with this entire story because nobody outside of, well, they're supposed to be from out of town, so nobody outside of Metropolis is supposed to be accepting that this is the real Superman. Superman's already returned from the dead, and as far as the public knew in this particular instance, there wasn't an indication that Superman died. He was just out of action or retired. So that the core of the story is kind of wobbly. Page 16, how can Nightwing see the data stream? Firestorm can see it because, you know, he can see the spectrum. Superman has vision powers, but is this another instance of Nightwing being more, given more credit than he deserves, or is this supposed to be some sort of hard light, you know, tangible stream? And yes, the HeroScape insert, it's going to be on every issue this month, this thing is annoying, it's this double gatefold right in the middle of the action, and just makes the book cumbersome to read. But moving beyond that to page 18... Uh, with a lot of these structures being kidnapped and the way they're cleanly taken out, it really starts to read like a so-so Brainiac story. 
It's just not. It's just all the way through it, I kept thinking Brainiac, Brainiac. No, not Brainiac. And page 20, I'm less bothered by the fact that the commanding general on the other end of the phone tells Superman that he no longer has security access, as I am that Superman even had security access in the first place. Now, we all know we can trust Superman, but at the same time, technically Superman's a civilian. I know he's been deputized, uh, deputized on certain levels, but at the same time, he shouldn't have both a security clearance and a secret identity in a post-9-11 world. And page 22, the Teen Titans are riding on this T-shaped flying surfboard. And it's a lot like the Fantasticar, if the Fantasticar was fueled by suck. And also, beyond Cassie and Tim, the lineup is pretty lackluster at this point. But of course, Superboy and Kid Flash aren't around at this time, because Connor is dead, and Bart is the Flash, and will soon be dead. And pages 24 and 25... uh, there's an ad for Superman toothbrushes from Colgate, and especially marked uh, Superman toothpaste as well. And I just want to point out that the, super, the Superman toothpaste, it's, it tastes like regular toothpaste. It's just fueled with wind. And on page 26, Ravager does make a nice, really good calculated move by leaping at the robot, knowing Superman is there in the distance to catch her. So kudos to that. But at the same time, what this means is that the best moment in this issue really belongs to a Teen Titan with with an assist by Superman. And I always hate that Superman can get it upstaged in his own book. And on the last page, the auctioneer makes his grand entrance. This guy looks like a cross between uh, the Mandarin, Darth Maul, and a Stargate villain. I'm going to give you two small spoilers on this issue. Number one, after this storyline is wrapped, you never see the auctioneer again. Number two, nobody is upset about this. See, I'm just convinced that this and the next two issues of Action Comics that make up this storyline are just fill-in issues that had to be scrapped together because last sum was late coming out of the gate. And I haven't to date been able to confirm this, so it's going just from memory, but it, it certainly reeks of a quickly concocted plot with no real ramifications across the line. An excuse to throw some low-selling, you know, books, title characters into Superman's flagship book to get them some attention. Pete Woods, however, upped his game enough to make this issue a lot more slick-looking than Up, Up, and Away. And the Dave Gibbons cover, despite looking kind of like a rip-off from the Uncanny X-Men storyline about ten years ago, the cover still does the job, even though the robot on the cover looks more like Metallo than any of the robots in this issue. Overall, an okay middle-of-the-road issue, maybe a little lack, you know, lower than that because of l- complete lack of inspiration. When you put it together, it's an okay read, and I'm going to give it two, S- uh, two and a half S-Shields out of five, because I'm going to detract points for unoriginality and that annoying Heroscape insert. And now we move on to Superman number 654, and a story entitled Our Special Day. This issue was written by Kurt Busiek, with pencils by Carlos Pacheco, inks by Jesus Marino, colors by Dave Stewart, letters by Comicraft, and was edited by Matt Idelson and Nachi Castro. And Lois wakes up to the smell of something burning at Sullivan Place. The kitchen is vacated with half-finished eggs, Florentine, honey nut toast, and freshly squeezed orange juice. 
and Clark has apparently awakened to fix her a special breakfast on their second day, but he is no longer there. Where is he? Well, a radio announcement clues us and Lois in on the fact that Superman is locked in a battle downtown. And we shift to a midtown to Midtown where Superman battles Neutron, who we only saw uh, just a few issues earlier when he tried to kill Clark Kent. Now, Neutron first appeared in 1981's Action Comics number 525. His body is composed of pure nuclear energy contained in a special suit, which grants him some strength, speed, and flight. Originally, he was just a petty thief named Nathaniel Tyron before being caught in a meltdown while doing a heist at the nuclear plant he worked at. So he's kind of like Wildfire, which is ironic. And Superman muses about Mondays and the special anniversary he has with Lois as he and Neutron do battle. Now, Neutron is trying to release spheres into the city as Bruno Mannheim's final goodbye, which Superman stops pretty quickly, but in the process he cracks Neutron's suit meaning Neutron is about to go kablooey over Metropolis. But Superman may have an ace in the hole. The Science Police, in their first appearance in the New Earth era, or to be more accurate, in our time period, for those of you that are Legion fans, and they are able to absorb Neutron's energy before he can hit critical mass. Now, stunned that Mannheim is back after such a long absence, which would call back to 52, Clark actually has to go back to work at the Daily Planet, where Perry just lays into him for missing the morning staff meeting. And Perry basically has two stories on hand, one involving a new LexCorp CEO, Lana Lang, who we know, and another covering Dr. Carolyn Llewellyn, who we don't know, but she is the world's foremost arcanobiologist. And that's a word that required me to go to Google. What an arcanobiologist is, beyond being hard to say, they actually study things that are not mainstream science. And this would be myths, gods, uh, maybe even cryptozoology, basically things off the beaten path, or fringe science. So basically she's like Frox Mulder combined with Walter Bishop. And Clark knows her simply as Callie. Well, this nickname certainly catches Lois's attention, and Turns out Callie has specifically asked for Clark Kent to come to Kazakhstan to cover a huge hush-hush project. But Perry isn't going to give these stories to Clark. Unless Clark does a series of trivial stories for Perry. So, on his way out, uh, Clark makes a lunch date with Lois, and Jimmy tries to figure out exactly what their special day is, since nobody seems to know what the anniversary commemorates. It's not their wedding anniversary... Not their first date. Nothing that uh, really registers. So, meanwhile, Clark uh, goes on and tries to cover his assignments. But crime just doesn't respect a deadline. He finds an intergang camouflage crew planting more spheres and takes care of them, despite the HeroScape insert returning to annoy me and many other readers right in the middle of the action. And overall, the day is filled with distractions, one after another, from underwater robberies to robotic pests, even some electrified popcorn sent by the prankster. And Clark keeps coming across these spheres like the ones Neutron were releasing. And they all put out a sonic pulse. So Superman thinks over the spheres, and not only does he miss most of his assignments in Lunch with Lois, he suddenly realizes that the spheres pulse are Bruno Mannheim's heartbeat, which he recognizes because of the arrhythmia. So he tracks the sound of the heartbeat back to a derelict warehouse in Suicide Slum and finds Bruno Mannheim, who is now this towering giant of a man in a giant chair holding a giant sphere. 
And Superman and Mannheim, of course, do battle, which Superman wins. And defeated, Superman asked Mannheim, the defeated Mannheim, if he is in league with Darkseid again. And Mannheim simply tells him he's not even close, and that he'll be back, and teleports to the sky, ending the day. So Clark Jed heads back to the planet and files the half of the stories he did get done before heading home to find Lois in some lingerie lit by candlelight. And Lois reveals that she filed the rest of Clark's stories for him. So the two of them dance into the air celebrating their first flight together, or the anniversary of their first flight together, I should say. And meanwhile in Kazakhstan, Borat and... No, wait, no. I'd like... No, it's not that one. Carolyn Llewellyn is there. Uh, she talks to a colonel in the local Kazakhstani army, and he refuses to acknowledge her concerns about, you know, the source of the tremors and ground shaking that's going on there. He tells, just tells her, hey, security's my job, science is yours. But Llewellyn just doesn't trust the judgment and hopes quietly that Clark gets there soon. And we see for one panel the cause of the tremors, which we're going to see a lot more next issue, and it's housed in the base below. This would be subject 17. So that issue ends. Some notes on this issue on page one. Why is Lois walking out in her underwear? Is this necessary in a family-oriented book? Not, no, but at the same time, what bothers me, not only can Lois look sexy in regular clothes, but this can be, this is just being ham-fisted about it. And since she's so pristine in this little tiny t-shirt and her underwear, when she's just supposed to be getting out of bed, why does her hair, her sleek new haircut, stay perfectly intact? Not necessary. Anyway, on page two and three, there was a blatant Superman Returns plug, which was completely not necessary, with the billboard featuring the Brandon Routh-style shield with the word Returns, just like the promo posters that were up at the time. Now, if you were a Superman fan in 2006, especially if you were picking up the comics at that point, you wouldn't not know that that movie was coming out. And at this point, I would even say, if you were picking up the Superman comic, the book was probably a harder sell than a movie ticket. Because even mainstream audiences went to see that movie to some extent. And also, on, the, on this uh, splash page in 2 and 3, why did Pacheco draw Superman's face like the man still had eaten too much cheese? I mean, he looks like he's straining way too much. But page 4, Pacheco does a really good job, again, redeems himself by giving us a graceful battle scene. And he uses really tight panels in his layout to show us how up close and personal this fight with Neutron is. And this introduces us on page 6 to the Science Police. Now outside of the Legion of Superheroes, this really marks the first uh, appearance of the Science Police, at least in the 21st century. And right now they're a division of the Metropolis SCU, the Special Crimes Unit. But these will be really important background characters down the road, really especially during the New Krypton time period. Moving on to page 7, there's an ad for Superman Fruit Snacks. Now I had a couple of boxes of these back in the day. And they tasted like stale Flintstone vitamins. And honestly, time probably do th didn't do these any favors. So if you come across these, I would kindly recommend avoiding eating them. Just a word of advice. Now on page 8, is that supposed to be an homage to Julia Schwartz sitting at the meeting table? I haven't been able to find anything confirming that. But if it is, I highly approve. And I also approve of the last panel where the background is a zip-a-tone pattern. 
loves me some straight up 80s zipatone. And on page 10, uh, the first new Earth era appearance of Londa Lang, I guess I should say first cameo appearance, to be more accurate. And this is Carolyn Llewellyn's first appearance in this issue. But what's with the buzz cut on Llewellyn? Come on, Sinbad O'Connor, put some hair on her. And on pages 10 to 11, I really dig Lois Lane's new haircut. I didn't at the time, but uh, I guess my tastes have changed a little bit. But Pacheco proves he can, right here, he could draw her sexy and normal business attire, attire without having to go over the top with it. And her facial expressions just nail it here. I mean, he draws a great-looking Lois. Well, he draws a great-looking Clark Kent. And what really kind of sells that is this nice marriage of his art and Dave Stewart's colors. Now, the colors are really muted, and I mean that in a good way. They're very more, uh, a little bit more earth tone. So the palette here, it doesn't overpower at all. And just adds a lot of texture to Metropolis and the characters. Now, on page 14, the mayor is having a meeting about reconstructing Metropolis after Luthor's recent attack. And, of course, re uh, Infinite Crisis. Now, something that bothers me is with the economy and the state of collapse we're in, well, even in 2006, I guess we hadn't really hit it, but we were heading that way. Don't you think a city like Metropolis, who gets these attacks fairly regularly, probably would just throw up their hands at some point and just say, screw it, move somewhere else? I don't know. I'm not. That's why I'm not in uh, fake, you know, fake comic book governments, because I would just throw up my hands, because about the time you get something fixed... It's time to repair the Daily Planet globe again, because that's what happens. Anyway, on page 16, Superman here looks really sleek, but manages to have some weight. And this was the first time I started noticing it. Uh, Pacheco is just getting, you know, almost everything I like about Superman right here. A nice balance of bulk and, uh, you know, sleekness. And, of course, the hero escape insert. It's going to be in the next Superman Batman issue, too, so you'll hear me gripe about it, but it was in all the comics that month, and I'll be honest, if this had ad hadn't really annoyed me at the time, uh, kind of like the blown-in magazine cards when you're looking at them at the borders of Barnes & Noble and they just fall out to the floor, and it's like you're vandalizing them. It's that kind of annoyance. So if these ads hadn't been there, I may have actually given the game a chance. But moving on, on page 17, there are some solid action shots of Superman. Pacheco has a really nice Jose Luis Garcia Lopez style and some nice solid figure work. And music in this issue hasn't been a slouch either. The story really moves and never finds a dull moment, but at the same time doesn't feel rushed. And I also don't get the sense that any of Superman's supporting cast are getting shortchanged even though Jimmy is kind of back to being comic relief trying to guess the date. It's pretty good. It's actually a good spot for him and at this point, and I'm okay with it for this issue, primarily because I know what's coming for Mr. Olsen. And on page 18, the panel featuring a perturbed Superman sitting on top of Prankster's electrified popcorn is absolutely awesome. You can just tell poor Clark is just at his wits end with this day. Now the last panel on page 19, Superman burst down a door and it kept catching my eye. Again and again, it took me a while to figure out what it is that I liked about it. And really, it just came down to the nice lighting effect behind Superman. And sometimes it's just the subtle touches or a silhouette that can just sell an image. And on page 20, I had to double-check the page. 
because the giant Bruno Mannheim looks a lot like the Bill Foster Goliath that had just been killed over in Civil War at Marvel. Now, of course, this was just a lighting. Uh, once he got out in the open, you could tell his ethnicity a little bit better, but just that shot with the weird lighting, it definitely had to do a double check. And wrapping this up, the page 27 and 28. Lois is in lingerie. Now, this is actually less necessary than the opening page. And I'm not a prude, I'm not a fan of censorship, but at the same time, gratuitous shots of Lois Lane's panties just don't seem appropriate. I mean, she really could have been wearing a slinky black dress and gotten the same effect. Now, to further make this point, hear me out. Lois also points out that she has ordered food in for delivery. So was she just planning on surprising the delivery boy? And also to add even more to that, on page 29, Lois and Clark fly in the air for one air dance over Metropolis. So Lois pulls on an overcoat. So this means the lingerie was redundant if she's cold enough and she knows that they're going to fly together. Lois is smarter than that. But that, you know, that's my biggest gripe about this issue. Because overall, this was a really good, straightforward Superman story. The art popped with just a few rough spots. And the issue never really let up, but didn't feel forced. It was just a fast read with a lot, of, quite a bit of action. And the characters and dialogue were on point, so... And also, the cover is another iconic Superman image, which may not fit into my top ten, but Pacheco has this great mixture of what the things I liked about Dick Giordano, George Perez, and then they mixed in with that aforementioned Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. So I'm laying down a full 4S shields on Superman number 654. And that brings us to our last book of the week, Superman Batman number 28. Written by Mark Verheiden, with Ethan Van Skyver doing art, and Ch Chris Chuck Ray provides the colors, with Rob Lay lettering, and Eddie Berganza is the editor, with Janine Schaefer as the assistant editor. And this is part one of the six-part The Enemies Among Us story. Alfred provides the narration here as we see Batman hitting a punching bag, looking really frustrated as he looks back over a social function earlier in the evening that he attended as Bruce Wayne. And no matter what he does, that bat brain of his can't shake the feeling that something just isn't right. I'm sure he does this a lot, but here he even blows off uh, Lucius Fox to suit up and sort out his problems by bursting the punching bag. Now Alfred stops Bruce's brooding to tell him what John, that John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, has dropped by. And I, I'm sure that that would be perfectly normal. I mean, wouldn't the Martian Manhunter just phase into the cave uh, but rather than knock at the front door? Should have been a red flag, Bruce. You should have been on top of that, Batman. So sure enough, John begins babbling about an injustice and attacks Batman, knocking him through. Two more punching bags, bursting them open, too. And somewhere, the Rawlings Company uh, hears a cash register dinging. Cha-ching! Sure enough, John begins babbling about an injustice. What? <laughs> so he keeps babbling about this injustice. And, uh, I mean, what did that workout equipment do to John Jones? No, oh, wait, he's talking to Batman. Okay. And, but why does John have to knock Alfred down, too? What did Alfred do? So in that situation, Batman actually uses a leaky gas pipe and a spark from a shattered free weight to set John ablaze. Because fire is the Martian Manhunter's weakness, for those that don't know. And when the smoke clears, Martian Manhunter is gone. A couple of days later, Bruce and Clark meet in the Justice League's original cave headquarters to talk about the attack. 
when Batman shows Clark a pair of people who weren't on the invitation list to the social function that uh, at the same function where Bruce was set off. Plus, in that scene with Lucius Fox, he had looked back at the man in a blue suit who changed into a woman in a blue suit. Now, their faces, when he pulls them up in the recognition software, they're too normal, statistically. So they're almost perfectly structured, which also makes me wonder, how did he get the scans of their face to begin with? And anyway, so the, the abnormalities, or the normalities in this case, points to shapeshifters. But before they really get, you know, too far into this discussion, an alert comes from Gotham City, and Batman points out that, hey, Clark can fly faster than his jet, and he unveils this new friction pod built by the younger toy man to, that was built to withstand high speeds, and Superman carries Bruce to Gotham in it, where the duo find the giant ape Titano, who, as we all know, has the ability to shoot from kryptonite from his eyes. An ability he immediately uses on Superman, which causes Clark to drop the friction pod with all that momentum and Batman inside it and send it careening towards a building. But Batman is able to bail out at the high speed while Superman tackles Titano and knocks him down. Now, when Superman and Batman manage to regroup, they find that Metallo has vanished, which indicates, again, that the shapeshifter, uh, shapeshifter but also uh, something that may have adapted further into the, into the able to expand bigger mass and plus replicate powers somehow following the uh, mass evacuation that they see from above they actually figure out that the being is in the aquarium so they head down there and in the aquarium uh, superman faces the parasite who begins to leech off the man of steel's powers together they deduce that this creature can't be john because john can't duplicate powers I like how this has taken Batman this long to put that together. Batman should have normally figured that out on page one, when Martian Manhunter walked in the door. So just when the shapeshifter takes the form of Dr. Phosphorus, he begins telling Batman that he just wants to be acknowledged, and Superman uh, floods the entire room by poking a hole in one of the aquariums, kind of killing the sea life inside, probably, but this causes Dr. Phosphorus to be flooded and to disappear. Now, as Superman and Batman leave the aquarium, they realize that this enemy could be anything and anyone, and this may only be the beginning. Now, as this is the... And that ends the first part of six parts, so it definitely is only the beginning. And some notes for this issue, real quick. I'm a very fair-weather Ethan Van Skyver fan, just to be honest. And it comes down to almost a character-by-character, character, sometimes a panel-by-panel panel basis on whether I like his art. And I'm never going to deny that the man can draw the heck out of some Green Lanterns. But his Batman has this extra portion of cape that curves into a claw around the midsection. Admittedly, it makes it more Bat-like. But it kind of kills uh, some of the sleeker aspects of Batman's costume. And on page 3, uh, the close-up of Alfred's face and the detail that went into this are exquisite. But one page later, on page four, Martian Manhunter looks really ch uh, cartoonish, almost like Sam Keith drew him in the Sandman. But Van Skyver is not Van is not Sam Keith. And anyway, when Martian on page six, one thing that kind of stuck out to me was Martian Manhunter punches Batman across the Batcave, but the arc of his arm, and maybe I'm looking at this wrong. You feel free to correct me, but. The arc of his arm shouldn't send Batman flying at the angle he's flying at. Certainly it's a dynamic look, but I don't know that the physics would work that way. Of course, I don't know anybody that can, you know, backslap Batman across a room, so 
Who am I to judge? Moving on to page 12, Superman shows up at the old JLA headquarters, which apparently has a much larger opening than I remember. It's a giant mouth of a cave, and I don't remember what security functions they have there, but it doesn't seem like such a secure place to me. Anyway, but I I like that when he arrives, Clark x-rays Bruce to make sure he's okay, and Bruce shrugs him off like an embarrassed kid. I think Bruce appreciates it deep down, honestly. I think, you know, even though it's kind of annoying, he kind of likes the older brother aspect of Superman, just trying to watch out for his better good. Now, page 16, I mentioned the friction pod, and this looks extremely close to Dick Grayson's flying Batmobile from Batman and Robin. I mean, literally just add four wheels, maybe a little bit of an art choice on some of the fins, a splash of red, really, and you've really just got it. So I don't know if this was the inspiration for that or not, but definitely there's a resemblance. And why does Superman have to carry Bruce upside down on page 17 in the friction pod? Couldn't you just flip that thing over, Clark? Anyway, I have to hand it to, to Van Skyver. Now, while I am, you know, hit or miss with him, his two-page page splash on pages 18 and 19 is just stellar. Titano looks menacing. The cityscape and the destruction thereof just looks amazing. I mean, Van Skyver can draw some off-the-chart amazing backgrounds. The only drawback to this is I find myself scanning the pages closely for hidden words that he is known for mainly the word sex. Look back on some of his new X-Men work. You'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. And also Vance Skyver's motion effects on the same page as Batman's on page 20, where Batman's bailing out of the friction pod. It really sells the speed and trajectory that this thing is traveling at. It's basically just a flying brick. So you definitely did get the feeling that Batman was pulling some awesome midair speedy maneuvers. And one additional note on that same page, Titano's frown as Superman punches him, it does this really weird, good, just great job of telling Titano's story too, especially if you know the story, because he actually ends up looking like an he was an innocent ape that was corrupted. So there's some of that still in there, and he manages this moment of innocence and almost childlike facial structure. But on page 23... The gaping Titano hole is spot on, where Titano would have fallen down, and it's very reminiscent of 9-11. I don't know if that was intentional, but it definitely brought back some some bad reactions. Now, overall, the story was pretty ho-hum. It had some high points when, you know, basically with Bruce and Clark bickering, and I love when that's done well. And Alfred's narration, of course, adds a lot of charm to the story, but once I put this issue down, to be honest, I just completely forgot about it. It was pretty much just, I enjoyed it while I was reading it to an extent, and then it was gone. So it was hard to make some notes on that without really just forcing myself. Because it was just bland, I guess would be the point. Uh, Vance Skyver does some good work here, and while his particular style may not always suit my palate, he can certainly tell a story very well. So I have to say he does a great job here, he really is good, a great storyteller. And overall, my final verdict for Superman Batman number 28 is the average. Three shields out of five, because there really isn't anything memorable about this issue, but it isn't entirely a waste or entirely flawed either. And before we wrap up the show, I have an email here from Douglas who writes, I'm not sure what your first initial stands for, so I'm going to call you Jay. 
Now, before I go further, I, I want to clarify that the J in my name is for Jeremy, which is my which is a name I never really use. My friends call me David. The reason I, I use it is I wrote a novel a few years ago and wanted to uh, appease my family and friends who knew me by that first name. So I kind of went middle of the road and added the J to my, my name to acknowledge it without actually being called by that name. And I kind of left it on for the podcast. Should down the road, I want to expand and kind of write any books on Superman, uh, something along that line. So I just kept it there. Anyway, Douglas continues, I heard about your podcast while Michael Bailey was pipping it on his From Crisis to Crisis podcast, and I thought it would be a great addition to what few podcasts I listen to. I've enjoyed every episode so far, especially the insight into Superman's creation, and I haven't collected many New Earth Superman trades. But the ones I've enjoyed are Up, Up, and Away, the comic book version of Superman Returns, Last Son, because it was a tale co-written by Dick Donner and involved character versions from Donner's film, uh, the Superman that I grew up to love and cherish, and I'm currently collecting the new Krypton trades as they come out, mainly because it was a long-running story arc that echoed the 90s version of Superman with the triangle numbering. Looking forward to great more great content, with good luck with the show. Signed, newly devoted listener, Douglas. And I, I do appreciate you listening, Douglas. I'm glad to be a part of that small group of podcasts that you do listen to. And I'm glad you did, you know, you're digging what you're hearing. Um, but the, and the show should get even better through 2011 and beyond. And apparently Michael Bailey should be getting an invitation to the Players Ball because he has, uh, he's just good at the pimping. So keep your pimp hand strong, Michael Bailey. And Douglas, you really hit on something, though. Because you mentioned reading the New Earth era in trades. Now, I'm pretty loyal to the floppies, a month to month, because that's just how I started out. And really, I like the hunt. When finding that back issue I've been searching for, I feel just like Indiana Jones. Outside of a few throw-me-the-whip-I-throw-you-the-idle moments, it's worked out well for me. But the way comics seem to have lower standards for shipping on time every time, plus uh, more and more prevalent ads higher prices, this era may be best read in trade form. And I know that the market is kind of going that way, and that's what it's designed for, but Last Sun is a prime example of a pretty good story that got diminished by its delays. And plus, in trade form, you already have the word of mouth, good or bad. And also, a good call on pointing out that Up, Up, and Away was the comic, comic book version of Superman Returns. Last Sun kind of played into that, too. I don't want to touch on that too much, because we're going to get into that shortly. And I just, I do really miss the triangle numbering. I like the idea that you basically had a weekly comic in, in the different Superman titles. So the return of that numbering uh, may be the best aspect of New Krypton for me. But I, I thank you for writing in, Douglas. And by the way, I want to pimp some things myself. Foremost being the Superman Podcast Network over at FortressOfBailey2.com slash Superman Podcast Network. And there have been some interesting additions and a little bit of changes for 2011. One being that there are two, count them, two Golden Age Superman podcasts that just started at the beginning of the new year. One is the Golden Age Superman podcast by John M. Wilson, and the other is the Thrilling Adventures of Superman by Michael Bradley, who wrote in a few episodes back about the Toy Man, if you remember. Now, links will be available to all of these on the show notes. Uh, as far as Billy Hogan's Superman fan podcast, he's actually taken on the task of looking at the Silver Age, which links up well with the Golden Age podcasts, and then Charlie Niemeyer's Superman in the Bronze Age podcast, and Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor's From Crisis to Crisis, covering the Burn Era. 
And then that would bring us to me in the modern age. So we now have podcasts covering all of the major eras in Superman's existence. And there is still an opening for a Supergirl podcast. I'm just saying. This is a really great time to be a podcaster covering Superman and his family. And uh, overall, I'm just really looking forward to 2011 and happy to be back on the mic. And uh, with that, that wraps us up for this episode of Superman Forever Radio. Next week, of course, we continue to uh, October of 20, of 20, October of 2006 and uh, kind of look at uh, those continuing storylines because each issue actually started a whole new storyline. So we're actually in a great, uh, great situation here. We're looking forward to it, and we'll also be looking at the Filmation New Adventures of Superman cartoon, continuing our animation series. I will see you next time. Be sure and leave a review at iTunes, and you can email the show at, at the email address mail at supermanforever.com, or drop us a voicemail at 703-95-SUPER. You may follow us on Twitter at superman4ever.com, which would be superman4ever, and we are also on Tumblr at supermanforever.tumblr.com, and of course at the Superman Podcast Network over at the fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork. Superman and all related characters are copyright DC Comics.